Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I am joined by Garrett Prawl of the DIY Sportsman. Garrett geeks out on e-scouting and is very detail-oriented when it comes to scouting public land whitetails. We discuss finding areas with diversity, identifying hunting pressure, historical wind data, buck and doe bedding areas, finding specific vegetation types, LIDAR maps, categorizing waypoints, and much more. If you like the podcast, please go over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to it and give a rating and review that helps out so much, but doesn't help out as much as just sharing it with your friends. Anybody you think would uh gain value from listening to this. I'd really appreciate that. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Garrett Prawl. Spartan Forge app utilizes years of military background and machine learning to pull from millions of data points to accurately predict deer movement, including GPS data, 30 years of weather, academic and state research. The new app includes GPS mapping with incredible aerial imagery, offline dependability, deer prediction, weather updates, journal entries, and much more. You can use the code East Meets West to save 20% off the Spartan Forge app at SpartanForge.ai. And if you're on the fence about it, use a 14-day free trial, put in the code East Meets West, and cancel if you're not a fan, but I think you will like it. Tethered is a company founded on the principles of educating the hunting community on saddle hunting while creating the most innovative, lightweight, safe products for saddle hunting. They have mobile hunting gear options for all types of hunters and continue to push the envelope. Speaking of pushing the envelope, they just dropped their new carbon fiber saddle, the Vader platform at the ATA show and will be available this summer. And if you haven't seen it, the Skeletor climbing sticks are out and just a little bit heavier than the one sticks fold up nicely, but they come with a lot less price point. So I think you'll be happy with those. If you head over to tetherednation.com, check out some of the tethered products and just to learn about saddle hunting. Maven is building the highest quality optics at half the price of their competitors through their direct-to-consumer business model. They want to create the best optics for the job, period. Their products are back with a lifetime no-fault warranty and an incredible customer experience. Maven just launched the CRS-1 and CRS-2, the first rifle scopes in the award-winning C-Series collection. Based on the popularity of the C-Series optics and on requests from customers, they developed a completely new lineup of rifle scopes at a lower cost. You can use the coupon code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full-price optics order at mavenbuilt.com. Kit Folks is the co-founder of Under Armour and Big Truck Farms an avid hunter, and just an all-around hardworking American. When I heard that he was building a brewery, I was excited to check it out. Since then, I've become friends with Kip, and Big Trucks Farms has grown into what I would expect. He has been extremely supportive of this podcast and hunting in general, so it went without saying that Big Truck would make a great partner of the show. The Big Truck name and icon promotes the idea of adventure and going past the unknown. 
They embrace the mindset of hard work in the outdoor lifestyle on the farm with an earn a beer mentality. They support and host archery shoots, donate to veterans, and make damn good beer. Check out Big Truck Farms at btfbeer.com and visit the farmhouse in Parkton, Maryland. Hey guys, last year was a wild year for censorship for hunters and anglers. We partnered with the social media platform Go Wild to combat mainstream social media censorship. Go Wild was built by outdoorsmen and women, by hunters and anglers just like you. Go Wild is a free social community. Not only are your photos not censored, they're encouraged on Go Wild. Go Wild gives you points for things like sharing your trophies, gear reviews, and inviting friends. And you can earn points, unlock rewards, uh, gift cards, free swag, knives, huge discounts on brands like Garmin and Tether, so much more. If you create an account, you get 10 bucks just for signing up. Go to GoWild.com to get started and use the code EASTMEETSWEST to save 10% off all gear, including tethered saddle hunting equipment. All right, we're live. Garrett Prawl from the DIY Sportsman. Welcome to the show, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm I'm pumped to I'm pumped to get to talk to you on here. I, I met you um in person finally at the Spartan Forge Veterans Hunt here this past November at Johnny's Cabin. And um and I've been following along with your stuff and watching your YouTube channel and podcast and everything else for, for quite a while. It seemed like you uh were one of the I think you were one of the originals with the YouTube game as you've been in it for quite a while. Yeah, it certainly seems like it at this point. And likewise, I've been following your content for quite a while now. Yeah. And um, so I'd like for you to start off by giving a little bit of background on who you are and and just a little bit about the, your information on what you've been, been putting out for however many years now. Sure. So my YouTube channel, which is DIY Sportsman, is it's kind of a mix of hunt videos, but also DIY projects related to hunting. Um, notable mentions would be like, I did a laminated longbow. Uh, I built climbing sticks out of aluminum using a CNC router in my garage, uh, things like that. Also a lot of product review videos, whether it's something that's related to mobile hunting or related to archery. And then also just videos that are maybe somewhat related to the tools that we can use as especially mobile hunters, where we're looking at a lot of different areas, we're doing a lot of scouting, and there's a lot of tools out there, some of which people are probably familiar with, others maybe they're not, but they can make our lives really a whole lot easier and make the e-scouting side of things a lot more efficient. So I had some videos way back when looking at things like, you know, Google Earth and, and even like the old handheld Garmin, you know, 62, like how to upload maps and, and do things. Yeah on those types of units. So obviously the technology has come a long way since then, but uh, that's kind of the content that I have liked to produce. Yeah. But what, what I've from, from the outside looking at your stuff, you are someone that definitely geeks out on learning the details of these things and how to, how to make them work the best for you and, and utilize tools and, and modify your own and, and do all of that. So it's been, um, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm, um, I don't think I'm completely to your level by any means, but I like looking at the details and I like trying to continually find stuff, especially with scouting and anything else and trying to become more efficient. And then once I learned your background, you're also an, an engineer by, by trade, correct? 
Yeah, I started off as an engineer. I, I'm in project management now, but similar type of thing. I'm managing design projects and doing some design work every now and then on the side. So, yeah. So you, yeah, you have you have that mind, you know, that mindset, and you're kind of working that way in your in your normal day to day job as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, so w- with that um, being said, how how long? When did you start your YouTube channel? I think. I opened the account probably in like 06, but I didn't really start actively posting a whole lot until maybe 2011, 2012, somewhere in that time frame. Yeah. Still early though for putting that kind of stuff on YouTube. At least it, fe- it feels like that, <clears throat> excuse me, for me. Um, and, and, and yeah, cause I, I feel like when I was, you know, looking back on your channel and stuff and, and once I, um, became more familiar with you in the last, I don't know, four or five years, then I f- saw some videos I'd watched from almost 10 years ago that I didn't realize were even uh, your stuff. You've been putting stuff out there for quite a while. That's for sure. Yeah. When you throw out the word decade into it, it really does put in perspective <laughs> how long ago that was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know it's 2022 already and uh, it's, uh, it is just crazy, but you know, we've, um, we've, you and I have been able to work together pretty closely recently with, Spartan Forge and working through that as you know as you talked about how far mapping has come a long ways and how we're able to aerial scout and do things now it's so much different than it used to be and and you know with with tools like that in place it's just I, I, I don't know I feel like we're very very lucky at this point to be able to have these things oh absolutely and it's a double-edged sword right if you knew how to do this stuff 10 years ago you had a huge edge on everybody if you know how to do this stuff now, the the la- level of the average guy has gotten a lot greater and you need to maybe add some more tools to the arsenal or, or supplement with more boots on the ground, that sort of thing. But definitely we live in a really great time frame for being able to utilize all of this information around us. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, a good thing too, to start off with saying is, you know, like as technology and this is a whole different conversation but as technology comes into hunting in a lot of different ways that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be more successful you need to know how to use it and still apply the work that comes comes along to it and i know that oh, yeah. we will we'll, we'll definitely be diving into that in more detail as far as you know you can you can aerial scout all day but if you can't confirm it or know what to look for when you're in the woods that's a whole a whole nother game yeah yeah totally agree yeah. So when, um, so kind of to, to start just diving into this a little bit, I, I want to talk to you, um, about e-scouting and all the details that co- go along with e-scouting, but because that's such a broad topic, I want to focus in on big woods stuff. And I know you hunt, um, a decent amount of big wood stuff. Am I right? Yeah. And it's probably good to define even, you know, what big woods is there too, because there might be a 30,000 acre, let's say cattail swamp. Well, technically you could call that a, a big woods type of an environment. Or like when we go down to Missouri in like the Mark Twain area, it, it's all hill country, more or less monotonous, got a monoculture type of habitat. But I mean, you got tens of thousands of acres there. I'd consider that big woods or like the stuff when we went up to, to Pennsylvania this fall, I would absolutely consider that big woods as well. And it's all a little bit different, but there's definitely a lot of similarities there. So I guess, you know, for the listeners, that's kind of where 
I'm, I'm driving from some of this experiences is based on those types of habitat and also now spreading more into like the northern Wisconsin type areas where it's flatter, but it's still kind of big woods and timbered and you get a little bit more logging mixed in. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because um, when I first started like talking about this stuff, I I realized there's like a bunch of, like you said, subcategories of big woods and you know then when it turns to hill country and when it turns to mountain country and when it you know goes it's like it's crazy and like i've hunted a bunch of different types of areas like you know where of big woods where there's some areas in pennsylvania i hunt that are almost relatively flat across and there's more swamps and different things that are mixed in and then you got some really steep stuff that has a bunch of different levels to it some with sheer drop-offs and and you know not as much bench systems and there's just so many different things but i feel like if you get the concepts down to a lot of these things um and are able to recognize it when you get into the woods you can apply it to the different different spaces yeah yeah one thing i've sort of found is that even if I am not an expert in some of these specific subcategories of terrain, just putting some time into doing hunts every now and then, you know, maybe one hunt a year, or hunt every other year, something like that. You really learn a lot about that specific type of, you know, habitat, but then you're able to also apply it when you see it here and there, even if it's like a secondary feature of some other place. You, know, you hunt a lot of hill country and then you hunt a place that isn't really hill country, but it's got some topography to it in certain places you can start to draw from that experience a little bit and maybe find things you wouldn't have otherwise known to look for if you hadn't already seen it in some other type of terrain yeah no that's that's exactly right and i think that's when you take you know some of the really you know successful hunters and stuff that i would consider like yourself in there and then you have the people like the andy mays and stuff that can go to these different places and just get it done it's because they're able to recognize i mean there's a lot of things but they're able to recognize things that they found success in or they found deer in or they found bucks in from one area and be able to apply that to another even though it might not be exactly the same like you said there might be a little bit of some sort of variation that looked similar in a different spot that you can apply it to this other area yeah yeah and when we get into maybe some of the more specifics i mean the stuff that i originally started to east scout and say like northern wisconsin mm-hmm. compared to what i look for now there's some similarities but there's a whole lot of differences things that i thought would be good were okay but a lot of times i a lot of hunting pressure and then stuff that i learned over time was really good now i know what that looks like on the map and i never would have thought to look for that type of stuff on a map prior to that you know actually hunting it and now that makes my e-scouting you know kind of when you go full circle a lot more effective in that type of habitat interesting so let's let's start out with that then i mean is that is so these things that you'd learn there is this kind of what your starting point is like if you're looking you're say you're going to look at just say northern wisconsin as a whole like where are you starting with from the e-scouting standpoint of an area that looks good or what are you considering at the, the beginning here So I'm looking for just generally max diversity, but there's also things that are important to me. Like how far is this away from a big city? There's a lot of guys that drive over from the Minneapolis area to hunt Wisconsin. And there's some bigger cities in in Wisconsin as well that will be kind of hubs for people driving out to hit some of these public pieces. It seems like the further North you go, the less hunting pressure you run into, but also, you know, you get more wolves and the habitat just not as, as good generally. And it gets, you know, a little bit harder, lower deer density, et cetera. So kind of trying to find that sweet spot where you still got good deer numbers, 
uh, maybe there's ag close by, maybe, maybe it is or isn't really close to specific parcels, but at least I know what kind of the soil quality is there just by looking at, you know, where you can see sort of the ag areas from like a, you know, hundred thousand foot view that can be helpful as well. But, but like you said, once you kind of get past that and narrow into more specific areas of the state, then it's like, okay, now that I have these chunks of, you know, 10, 20, 5,000 acres, whatever, which ones have the most diversity. And if I know that it has a lot of diversity, it means it's probably not going to be a one and done type of area where I, I would say go into a spot and I have the three best looking areas in mind. And if they're good, great. But if they're not, then it's like, okay, well, the rest of this stuff's kind of monotonous. Whereas if I find an area and it's got, I can see some clear cuts and I can see some swamps and I can see some beaver ponds and creek drainages and a little bit of rolling topography. And I can see tamaracks and, and maybe some, some spruce trees, but then also I can see areas where there's definitely hardwood ridges and all of this stuff is, is kind of in the, the same, you know, five, 10,000 acre area, a lot of transition lines. That's the kind of stuff from like, okay, even if this type of an area has a lot of hunting pressure, I know that there's a whole, there's probably more deer there for one higher deer density than maybe areas that are more monotonous. But number two, I know that I'm probably going to be able to find areas to get away from other people because there's a lot of kind of sub features within that type of landscape that'll hold deer and that deer will move into, even if they are getting pressured in certain spots of that. Yeah. And, and like you said, I mean, with that, that max diversity, it, I mean, that's first, this first thing that I, that I do the, the same way as you. And, and a lot of that too, is just because like you said, when it holds a deer, but they, no matter, you know, when you have the areas that have a lot of the monotonous, same type of timber, you know, if, if it's say you're relying on oak crop or something there and you don't have that, those deer can migrate miles away or do something. When you have those areas with all this different diversity and stuff in there that holds them there, even if there is a mask, there's no acorns this year. Okay. Well, they got browse from this clear cut. They have, you know, they have beech nuts. They can get over here if this is good. And they, and they have just a bunch of different stuff that they can and feed on and grasses and all that different stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's the habitat can support them year round. And I know for sure there's doe groups that really don't really like even move that much. Like you'll find them in the summer and they're feeding on clear cut and then they're feeding on woody browse and, and things like that in the winter. But the amount of distance that they travel is not far at all. Yeah. And so if you were to, um, you know, outside of the, just the, I guess let alone, let me ask you one more question on the the diversity side of it. So when you're talking about that habitat diversity, how much does uh, terrain diversity come into that? Are you mostly uh, focused on looking at different um, vegetation types? I think I guess I that probably depends. Yeah, the area. I, I probably pref- I probably prefer. I mean, ideally, yeah. If I have elevation or topography that's there as a baseline. I'd much prefer that it also has a whole bunch of diversity on the vegetation side of things. And I guess the same is true with flatland. Yeah. So, so I'm always looking for that. There's a lot of areas that you walk in like hill country and it's like, okay, there's a great pinch point here, but it's just like kind of wide open hardwoods and oak trees all over the place. And like the area in Southern Missouri is kind of like that where you can walk through it and you find maybe some hints of trails around really good pinch points, but there's not a lot of great pinch points and there's oak trees at every elevation. 
and <laughs> it all kind of looks monotonous. You get some of the creek bottoms. I mean, it's a little bit like Pennsylvania in certain areas that from what I saw when I was there. Some of the creek drainages are where you got the thicker areas in general. Occasionally you have burn areas, which you can only really see if you were on the ground, if they were recent. Um, but if I look at a spot and I can see like, oh man, there's vegetative transitions all over the place here and you got the hills, then that's great. It, it seems like, you know, if it was between, hey, I've got flat land and I've also got three miles away some like hilly stuff and they both have really good vegetation transitions a lot of like i guess diversity on that side of things that's a really good question in terms of which one i'd prefer Mm -hmm. because most likely the hillier area could hold more deer and in some cases it maybe could hold bigger bucks because they have more scent advantage i think a lot of times they're less likely to get killed um i see that a lot in like southern minnesota where it's like how the amount of pressure how can these deer grow old but they do They, they use that terrain to their advantage the flip side of that is the flatlands probably going to be easier for me to hunt. So I would probably want to scout both of them. I'd prefer if I found what I was looking for on the flatter land because it's easier for me to predict the wind and make a clean setup. You know, and and that's really interesting that you said that because I struggle with the flatter land and I would rather have the, the hillier country. The wind is definitely a thing, but I feel like it funnels the movement down more with using the terrain and mix with the vegetation. But just out of me personally, I've found some, some bigger deer in some flatter areas that I struggle to, to figure out and how they move because they don't have the, the terrain advantage. They have some of the vegetation stuff. So that's, that's yeah. interesting um, on, on how, how you're thinking about that. But from the wind standpoint, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. With, yeah, and, and there's, it seems like if you do find a big deer in flat land, to your point, it's not like you can just go in there and kill them. It seems like their core areas are still pretty big. And even with the exact same weather conditions, exact same wind direction, exact same everything, it seems like even in that like late October time frame when they start hitting their scrape circuits, it's like they won't hit the same one every day. No. <laughs> maybe maybe two or three times a week. And it's like, okay, if I get a consistent northwest wind, I can hunt over this great scrape on the downwind side of a bedding array and I can hunt it five days in a row. And there's a good chance that one out of those five days I might get a crack at that buck. Whereas if it's, it's hillier country, it just, I feel like it takes a lot more time to figure out the place enough to where you can have those clean sits and find the clean access. That's, that's a very, that's a very good point. And, and yeah, until you, until you kind of get in there and check it out with you, re- basically you have to hunt it to be able to know by checking the wind and dropping your milkweed and, and doing that. And you can do some sort of wind mapping, but that only gives you a, a very general idea. I feel like to, and until you get in there and so but I, I'm, I'm going to come back to that, but you'd said something I don't want to forget about. And you're talking about the pressure and when you're looking at things there, you know, you talked about like being, you know, say far away from major cities and stuff, but what about, um, within like, okay, you get down to a smaller area looking at, you find that, that train and, or just diversity in general that you're looking for what are some things that you're looking at to kind of establish those zones of pressure or things that are no goes or, and things that you're looking for. So within like a specific piece of land, it seems like, especially if you've got hunter access trails or just straight up logging roads where they, you know, access to take their, their timber out. Those almost always will be hubs for a lot of the guys walking in and 
depends on the place, depends on the people, but a lot of times guys aren't going too far in past that logging road. And so you can almost like, you know, take a highlighter over a logging road and make it, you know, like a wide swath, you know, 200 yards on either side of that road. It might be three miles long. It might be three miles back. There's guys that'll take bicycles back there three miles and go 200 yards off the logging road. Uh, but it seems like there's fewer and fewer people that go, you know, let's say three quarters of a mile on that logging road and then cut way off another mile to walk in. Um, or guys that are parking alongside the road and then just cutting in 200 yards and, and hunting near the road there. Yeah, no, that, and, and it's, it's like you just said, and that makes sense too, with like the people that, um, you know, it's always the, the end of the road syndrome. Like everybody wants to go to the end of the road to park and then go on and hunt, you know, or if you just find a spot and I, I know some States don't allow it, but most at least in Pennsylvania and some of the other states have hunted you could where you pull off along the road maybe you have to go up a, a bank or up a hill right there you don't even need to go in as far because you know people like going to the end of the road and you know moving in from from that direction and like you said like just when it's easy uh easy for them to walk on people are probably a lot more willing to go in further than if they were you know having to bushwhack or go off trail yeah yeah the other thing i noticed a lot too is the the types of features that are very commonly talked about whether it's like have you ever wanted to have levi morgan andy may johnny stewart and others available at all times well you can with cyber scout from spartan forge cyber scout is like the chat gpt for outdoors men and women you can ask it any questions related to bow building, scouting, hunting, survival, and a whole lot more. I think you'll be impressed with how it responds. Cyber Scout is currently out now for a select group of early beta testers and will be available to the rest of you really soon. The entire app is a complete tool for planning your hunt with incredible aerial imagery mapping, journaling, deer prediction, and some of the most accurate and detailed weather data. Use the code East Meets West to save 20%. And if you're still on the fence, give the 14-day free trial a chance at SpartanForge.ai. CVA has been America's number one selling muzzleloader brand for over a decade. Hunting with a muzzleloader opens up a ton of hunting opportunities across the U.S. And I've been using the Acura series. But they don't only make badass muzzleloaders. Their line of centerfire rifles are great quality and not terrible on the wallet. The Cascade Short Barrel is ideal for tight quarters, deer drives, and quick shots in the big woods. You can check out their line of muzzleloaders, rifles, and accessories for every season and every range at bpioutdoors.com slash CVA. If you use the code EASTMEETSWEST10, you'll get 10% off of all CVA products, which includes rifles, muzzleloaders, and accessories. Let's say it's, it's something that's been around for years, like hunting saddles in hill country. Mm -hmm. or if it's something that's maybe more recent information like a cattail or an oak island in a big giant cattail marsh if it's really obvious like that and it's something that people have been trained to look for it seems to always have more hunter pressure than other little subtle edges and, and things like that that you find by just covering boots on the ground uh, there's one place that i hunt where it's like you got this one oak island and it's surrounded by alders and and wire grass marsh and then you got hardwoods nearby in like a big island and it's way back in there but there's every year there's hunter sign back there there's trail cameras and it's just too obvious um so you can almost look at a map now and it's like okay if there's one of those things 
I'll go check it out, but I know in my mind that there's a good chance there's probably going to be hunter pressure there. Whereas if you got the same type of thing, but there's 30 of those Oak islands in like a 5,000 acre trunk. Okay. Well, I can probably find one of those in any given day that has not had somebody in there for three months. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no. And then that, that makes sense. And look, being able to, to look for those areas that have the the different ones there. Cause I, I know, I don't know about you, but um, if you ever say you were to give uh, one area of a map and give it to five people and say, look at the map and tell me where you would go at, I bet you with the information that's been out there and stuff, most people are going to f- pick the same places to, to go yeah. to. And I learned that from when I started hunting Southern Ohio and I'd go in there and I'd be like, all right, I'd go find saddles. I got to do some, you know, this stuff and I'm hunting the rut and I'd go into these spots and it'd be like, it'd be ridiculous with how much human sign or be a climber on the base of that tree over there. You'd have scent wicks hanging over top of the scrape that was on the top of the saddle and all these different things. And, and that didn't mean that at least for me, when I looked at it, it's like, okay, that doesn't mean I shouldn't ignore those places. And sometimes you can find that good sign, not very far from there that they might just be skirting that or anything. But, um, I, I like your, your thought process with, you know, just trying to find where you have, uh, multiple, uh, circumstances in a specific area, um, where those things look alike and that you, you have better odds, I guess, odds multipliers of not, not running into people. Yeah. Here's another thing I, I would kind of, I guess, keep as a, a qualifier for an area. How long is it going to take me to scout this? If I can take a map, let's say it's a, a thousand acre trunk you're looking at for sake of argument. And you're like, okay, I can hit the key areas I want to look at in one day, seven mile loop. I want to go hit this, this, and this, and then I can come back versus, man, there's a lot of edge in here. I can maybe take one day and hit you know, this on a five mile loop and then I can come in on a different five mile loop, hit all this edge. And then it's like, okay, if it takes me that long just to scout everything that could be good, then there's a lot higher likelihood that there's going to be places that are easy for me to find and hunt that are away from other hunter pressure. Even if some of those spots are getting hit by other hunters, like you're probably not going to have to move that far to find deer. Mm, Yeah. That makes sense. And so with that and, so those are all the things that you're kind of looking for from a hunting pressure standpoint. Yeah, that and it seems like certain areas get hot or cold, whether it's whether it's based on, you know, somebody shoots a 170 out of a, a particular area one year, and then the next three years is just pounded, um, and then maybe the other stuff around is hardly hit at all, and it, it seems like you get these like kind of little gradients where it goes up in hunting pressure for a few years and then maybe it drops back off you know guys are like man there's just people everywhere i'm not gonna hunt here next year and eventually it dies back off again and then the deer you know quality kind of jumps back up again um but that's something that's you obviously can't really tell from just e-scouting you almost have to drive around during the season see where all the vehicles are talk to guys in the parking lot and that sort of thing to get a feel for that yeah and yeah, yeah, that that's that's a harder one, like you said, to be able to identify until you're you're there. You know, it's not like and I know you um, 
have hunted out west and stuff before, but like when you look at e-scouting for there, I always go back and look at historical imagery and try to find where everyone has camp set up or look for September imagery to see where the trucks are parked at the trailhead to, to kind of give an idea. Um, yep. But it's not as easy in a lot of the forested areas in the, you know, the Midwest and the East and the Northeast and stuff where you can't, can't see a lot of that stuff from the, the tree canopy as much. Right. Right. Um, so, okay. To kind of, kind of move back along to, um, you know, the train and the, and the vegetation features that you're looking at, I, I feel like, and I'm going to ask this question because I know you're, uh, you're big on this, but before you even start by, um, looking at this area, you're that if you're trying to be efficient with your scouting, um, I know you, you're big on looking at historical wind directions, and I'd like you to kind of explain that thought process because this is actually a new one to me that I didn't I didn't utilize until um, really until Bill showed me it within the Spartan Forge app and and then I found out that you've been using this and it's something that's very uh, something to use a lot. Yeah, I used, I used to have to dig deep into the web to find that that historical wind data, but what I would use it for is you know, generally you have common wind directions in certain areas of the country, but there's minor differences. You know, maybe some places more predominantly a Southwest for a large portion of the year. I know in, you know, places in Minnesota where I hunt, it's like, okay, November hits and you get a lot of North Northwest, or you might get South if that, you know, the cold front is fighting the warm front, but you don't really get a whole lot of like the Southwest. You don't get a whole lot of East, you know, East is like super rare in our area. But what I would do in looking at kind of the historical wind data is I wouldn't necessarily look at like the entire year and look at a wind rose for the entire year. I would look at month by month specific. And then what I'll look, what I'll learn as I look at September, okay, predominantly southerly winds, like south, southeast. And if I go to October, okay, now I got some more west mixed in there, maybe some northwest. And I look at November and then it, it becomes more like bimodal almost where you get either like the Northwest or the Southeast, but not as much of like the West or the East. And so then I can take that information and look at it from, I guess, uh, how am I going to hunt this perspective? And also how would our deer potentially going to use this perspective? And if you get a, a place that is in hill country and you anticipate that they're going to be using wind-based bedding and you see a lot of, you know, let's say bedding points that are, facing west right to where if they were a leeward bedding you'd have to have an east wind and then on the other side of the drainage you get the opposite it's like okay well i'm gonna bet that more deer are likely to be bedding with that wind advantage if they you know have that predominant wind direction during the month of like let's say november um, if i want to go on an out-of-state trip and i'm banking on you know a rut hunt where i have leeward ridge sits then I'm not going to focus on the stuff that is set up for an east wind. I'm going to focus on the stuff that's set up for, you know, the southeast and the northwest. And that really kind of eliminates a lot of dead space. Um, it's it's maybe, it's easier, I think, when you anticipate wind-based bedding, for me anyway. Uh, but there's also instances where, let's say, there's like a river system or you have like a pond or a lake, beaver swamp, whatever. And it's like, okay, I can sit up on the northwest corner of this beaver swamp and I can sit right on the edge. And I know that that 
winds are going to blow from the woods and it's going to blow my scent out over that beaver swamp. And those deer are going to cruise that edge up around that corner. And I can sit there pretty safely with that wind direction. So I'll look at it from that aspect too. Yeah. No, I, I, I think, I mean, to me, learning that from someone that I feel like I've e-scouted, you know, for a long time and I loved doing it. And I just had never looked at it from that perspective, other than that I would always take the historical uh, wind direction from my trail camera photos and look at it as far as specific deer or when times were hot and what direction the deer were coming from with that and, and look at it from that perspective. But really, like you said, especially if you're going out of state hunt or if you don't, you have like a weekend to scout and say you're able to go in the spring and scout ahead of time, or even if you don't, you're going in blind, you can really cut down on those areas by, and be efficient with it by, you know, basically exiting out, you know, blocking out a lot of these other areas if you're focusing on that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there's always the chance that you do all this work and you focus on the most common wind directions and you can see the upcoming forecast for your trip and you get like three random days of east winds. Like there's, there's always the chance that that happens and you just got to go with it on the fly. Uh, but the fact that we now have that sort of in the Intel tab on Spartan Forge, like at your fingertips, you can just look it up whenever makes it so much easier than what we used to have to do to get that info. Yeah, no, it, it definitely does. And, 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 you know, and like you said, with the, the wind-based bedding, you know, that can be super helpful when you have terrain systems. So how would you, um, in some, I guess, um, I guess you kind of talked about a little bit of a flatter areas with it and basically the bedding being, you know, on the edge of vegetation and stuff with the wind of their back. Are you finding more wind-based bedding then, or are you, um, seeing a lot more cover based bedding in those types of situations? It seems like it depends on how thick the area is. If it's a lot, like if there's a lot of deadfall and clear cut, and just generally very thick understory. seems like they bet a lot of times, you know, based on either like noise, noise a lot of times, um, especially for does. And it seems like in those types of areas, less commonly, will I see a buck that's bedded just like against a log. It, it almost seems like there's times when you'll find that, that same deer like tucked into like three trees worth of deadfall. Um, and then he doesn't have to go very far. Like he could still probably stand up and see like out over like an open area, but I never, I don't see him as commonly just like out in the middle of the, the hardwoods, um, or out on the middle of like a point with the wind coming over his back. Now, like steep bluff country, totally different story, right? Like you get more open bluff country and that buck's almost always going to have, it seems like that worn into the dirt bed where the wind's coming over his back. In marsh areas, it seems like a lot of times they'll bed in the same areas regardless of the wind direction. They might move around a little bit and, ha- and have different beds, but, you know, it seems like they might use the same bed on two different winds mm-hmm. or, you know, like they're not always tucked into the same spot, but you see less consistency with specific wind directions, it seems like, in certain times when they have that cover around them. Yeah. Would you, would you think, um, from based off of what you've seen, would you think that you've seen more betting based off of, um, wind or cover, or are you still, are you thinking like, it's just a based off of the, the terrain and the specific area, or do you, do you think deer have a certain sense that they like more, you know, do they like to be able to see more or would they, or would they take, 
you know, cover or wind advantage? I'm just generally curious about that. Yeah, it's a good question. I would imagine, and I I can't ask the deer, I don't know the answer, but I would imagine that there's probably some level of individual preference. You get two deer on the same property, same age. Maybe one of them prefers to bed in a wind-based spot. One of them prefers to bed where, you know, he can see more and that's his primary defense. Um, it seems like in practice when I'm out in the woods, I find more cover-based bedding in thicker areas and more wind-based or site-based bedding in more open areas. But there's probably exceptions to the rule everywhere you go, I would imagine. Yeah. And and I was I was gonna say mine I've come to I guess similar conclusions on that with the with the thick cover versus some of the the more open hardwood type areas. But it's still at the same time, I feel like every time I think I have somewhat of an idea with an area, there's just certain ones that throw me off and and uh it's it's difficult to understand you know what what they're kind of looking at there what um or i'll bump a deer and i'm like all right i'm trying to figure out the situation on how this made sense it's like okay this you know this deer was was betting um with the wind you know at um with the wind in his face instead of at his back and it's just it's just an interesting it's just interesting how the deer how the deer do that so when you're like so if you're looking at um you're looking at a map and you're e-scouting and you got the aerial imagery pulled up and say you're looking at an area that has more thick cover and we're not talking about big steep um ridges and point systems you know how are you are you looking for buck bedding are you looking for potential areas to mark to go in and check out or are you just looking for um specific vegetation features then you'll figure that out once you get in there a lot of times i'll mark all the edge and walk all the edges i can and the more time that takes me the more edge there is and that's generally a good thing Mm -hmm. but i've been wrong a lot of times where i'm like i bet there's a buck better right here sometimes there is sometimes there isn't Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I walk along transition lines and, and maybe you pick up on something or there's a trail heading into a thicket and you're like, okay, well, I'll go check this out. And then there's like a nice little wide opening, you know, 15 yards into a clear cut. And it's like, okay, well, the sign's here that the buck's bedded here. I wouldn't have guessed that by looking at the map, but you know, it is what it is. So a lot of times what I like to do in those types of areas is look at leaf off imagery where it becomes really clear as to where all of those transitions are. I mean, even with like, the difference between like spruce and tamarack if you get a leaf off imagery you can tell the difference between those two tree types and you look at like hardwoods and you can start to tell the difference between okay this is you know clearly mature hardwoods or this is aspen regrowth from an area that was clear cut and it just makes those little subtle inside or interior transitions whatever you know whatever people call them um makes them a lot more obvious than when you're looking at summertime imagery and everything looks green and you don't really know where to walk. So I'll take that leaf off imagery and I'll just go through and I'll draw lines on every transition. And then I'll just make a plan for what's the most efficient way to cover as many of these in one day as I can. And then just tackle that and then do the same thing the next day and the next day until that area, you know, 200 acres, 300 acres, whatever it is, is thoroughly covered and then once i'm out actually in the field that's where i'm marking the beds i'm marking the rub lines i'm marking the the scrapes and the licking branches and you know here's the random white oak tree okay that's important to know for september and 
then a lot of times I might learn that the deer are using it a little bit differently than what I may have assumed once I get out there. Well, then I take that those notes and I go back to the aerial imagery. It's like, okay, based on this new information, how am I going to relook at this now? You know, this area was really good. What else looks like this exact thing? And I'll find three or four more spots where that's present on the imagery and then go check those out as well. Yeah, no, that I, I like, um, I like how you said you're drawn, like you're drawn lines basically around those spots and then trying to find the most efficient way to cover them. So when you're, when you're walking those edges, are you sticking to your plan? Are you sticking to your guns with that? Are you kind of modifying that as you're in the woods and as you're walking around and, and you know, okay, be like, Oh, well, if I start, you know, I'm finding a good sign here, but if I if I start walking this direction or changing plans might derail it. I might not cover as much. What, what for you or are you sticking to your plan hundred percent? You adapting kind of when you go in or how, how are you making that worth your time? If it's really promising looking sign, I don't hesitate at all to sort of break plan. Mm -hmm. If I, and just generally speaking, let's say I have a four mile loop mapped out to hit a certain, a certain area certain loop just generally from the little zips and you know zags and whatever to check out little things i end up putting on like six or seven because you're not just always walking in that straight line you're going and checking in this little spot check that little spot out take pictures of this and so you get back at the end of the day and your map's like you know a little squiggly compared to just the nice straight lines that you drew going into it yeah and if i only end up hitting 20% of what I wanted to, it's probably because that 20% looked really good and I spent a lot of time in it and then I can go check the next stuff the next day. And when, so when you're in there and you're marking all of those things, say, you know, you're marking down the beds and the rubs and the scrapes and all that good stuff you're looking for. When you come back, are you reviewing that information and like kind of looking at it on the map again? Um, what, what's, what do you do with that information that you find there? Yeah, no, that's a good question. It's, I definitely always look back at it and it's kind of like a small picture versus big picture thing. They're both important. When you're on the ground, you can look at the small picture stuff, little micro details, and then you look at it back on the map again and then things start to click. Uh, okay. I saw this sign here and here and you look at it from kind of the top down. I bet this beer's core area, maybe, maybe it spreads this way. I thought it was over here, but the signs tell me something else. And then you can kind of connect the dots and before you know it, you're able to, to draw a little swath of like really good stuff, or you might be able to interpret like where else he might show up. Like assuming we're talking about just, you know, one particular deer that you found, got a picture of or saw a sign of or whatever. Yeah. Um, but then just like generally deer hunting, I can tell like late season right now, like there's an area where I can, I can go in and like cross all these trails and, you know, walk a mile and, and hit three super heavy trails. Right. And then you follow one of those trails and you walk up and down another couple hundred yards and you, you get another few crossing points. Well, then you take that information, you pull it back up with the 10,000 foot view and you can kind of connect the dots and be like, okay, they're feeding here. Like I don't have to, like I probably didn't have to confirm that. I can almost just assume that this is where they're going to be feeding right now. It makes sense because of X, Y, Z. And that means they're probably bettered over here. Maybe I take another scouting loop to confirm that. And then I'm able to like get a really clear picture for what's going on with only having spent a little bit of time there. Yeah. And and when you, when you are um, scouting in the field, how much are you t- 
taking into play uh, when you find buck betting versus doe betting? Do you have and like it's is there a preference for you there? Are you taking note to both? Are you only paying attention to one? How how do you look at the the different betting like that? I'll usually mark them both, and I guess the importance of it will vary. A lot of times it seems like in these big wood areas that are thicker, it's very hard for me to find buck beds. Like true, where I can just like, yep, this is this is it. Compare that to say hill country, it's much more obvious. Mm-hmm. You can go to hill country, you can almost call your shots, there's gonna be a bed here, 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 and here. But I can't do that in the big woods. And sometimes I find those beds and it's like, okay, this makes sense now that I'm in here, but I wouldn't have known to look here otherwise. So I'm definitely marking that because I'm looking that at that in the context of what is that deer doing, you know, throughout the year, early season, maybe it's different than, you know, maybe he's, he's feeding on this white Oak flat early season. And then that shifts closer to doe bedding as it gets closer to the rut. So I'm looking at those doe bedding spots also. And it seems like for the most part, the, the places where the does are very active in the summer and spring, you get a lot of those bucks. that seems like they show up there, right? Makes mm-hmm. sense. And, and that's not like new information either. It's pretty like common knowledge, but you can use the doe bedding information. A lot of times it's easier to find the doe bedding information to where if you're like, I, I don't have the time to put in to figure out a specific buck and where he's bedding and be able to set up 60 yards from his bed. But I know where these doe groups are and I've been able to locate four different doe groups. You look at those doe groups on the map, 20,000 foot level. How do you connect the dots here? Is there any pinch points? Is there any beaver pond edges? Is there any ditches crossings? And then that's like a pretty good way to kind of set yourself up well for hunting the rut. Yeah, no, I, I, I was just going to say, you know, with, with hunting the rut and finding those, those doe bedding and, and, and I knew, you know, and I asked you that question kind of setting you up for that because I knew this is that's your approach to it was, you know, reviewing that information after you mark it down, you find those things and looking at it on the map again, you know, pulling it up and being like, okay, yeah. Connecting these dots and finding where these things all meet up and almost create like a, a hub or place they have to go through. And, and with those pinches, especially towards the rut, which I know that's a lot of the time people are, are focusing on on that information then maybe you know if you're hunting more early season focused more on those buck beds are are more important but when you were talking about you know big woods um buck bedding it it is interesting because i i i'm i have struggled to find singular buck beds in the big woods and i and i need to add context to that again, not talking like steeper hill country, big woods stuff or mountain country. I'm talking, you know, less terrain, you know, more rolling type country, big woods stuff. It, it just doesn't, it doesn't, um, for me at least, and it sounds like you're doing the same thing as I'm looking for those areas of cover, or maybe there is a, a cut here or there's, um, you know, some, some places I'll look for, you know, big patches of um, some sort of hemlock or, or spruce or something that's creating some different cover here, these edges and walking those to try to, to figure out. But in, in reality, you know, they could be bedded in different portions of that, but it's more of a bedding area versus a bed. Is, yeah, is that kind of what exactly. you're saying? Yeah. It seems like in those areas, I almost have, have s- sort of shifted from thinking about, okay, I need to find a specific bed to, I need to understand what this core area is. Mm-hmm. 
and maybe it's, you know, a couple of acres. Um, I, I suppose the size probably depends on the deer too. Yeah. It seems like they don't, they don't move a heck of a lot outside of their quarry area in daylight during early season. Um, during the rut, it seems like obviously move it quite a bit. Um, but I think there's a lot of times when I'm looking for, let's say a buck bed and I probably walk right past it in the big woods because it's just not as obvious and it's not as well worn into the ground because he's probably not bedding there all the time as much as a, a deer in bluff country would bed in the same spot for a very common wind direction. Mm-hmm. And if you can, it's like, if you find it or you, you bump him out of his bed, like that's, that's like the goalie grail, right? You're walking through, you're scouting, doing whatever, and you, you kick this giant out of its bed. Okay. I'm going to learn like as much as I can about this spot and then expand this radius. Cause now like, I just at least look at the wind direction too, in case it's wind-based. Okay. Now I'm starting to put the pieces together on that core area. Yep. It seems like a lot of times I rely on the in-season scouting for that too, where if I don't have anything locked down, like I'll just scout, like I won't even bring my bow early season if I don't have anything that's like, I feel like it's a really solid setup. And if I jump a deer, it's like, okay, great. I just learned where that deer was betting in this area. And then again, back to the e-scouting, you look at the map again. Okay. How does this fit into the big picture? Yeah, exactly. And, and if you bump them, like same, same with me, it's like, that's, that's perfect. Cause you understand, okay, he's been in this area. He feels good here. You know, how big is this section that looks similar to this, you know, that he could be betting on different corners. If, like you said, if it's, it's wind based betting or sometimes, you know, maybe there's a little, if it's like a log and cut and there's a log landing on the interior, you might be betting on the edge of that at some point or on the, uh, on the, the, the edge of the logging road or whatever it might be. And, uh, just being able to identify those, those core areas versus the, um, the bedding point, you know, that you would typically find in more of the steeper country that has some of that varying terrain. And it's, it's taken me a while to, um, to learn that too, is just, you know, cause I, I just always, you know, growing up and, and reading things about buck bedding, I was always under the belief that you could never find a singular buck's bed until, you know, I was focused more on steeper terrain. I'm like, okay, I, I can see where this can make sense. And then, you know, in, in, uh, the bigger woods areas, I mean, that, that was something mostly that I had learned from my dad and then eventually got to see, you know, for myself is that, you know, they have these specific areas that they like, and there might be multiples that they have that are, you know, multiple areas, core areas, you know, within a, a bigger spot that they'll bounce around to depending on the time of the year, um, vegetation, food, all of those different things, but trying to identify those. And a lot of times either in season scouting or running cameras around those spots to try to figure out how they're u- using them, entering, exiting, stuff like that. Is that, how do you, if you're looking at, um, an area that you think a buck is betting, how are you looking at it and trying to figure out, um, how, how they're using it and how you're actually going to make a play on it? I'll usually have, I'll put cameras up on scrapes. Um, and if it's not opened up yet, I'll, I'll find the licking branch. I've gotten better over the years of finding licking branches, like even in the summer. It's like, okay, this is the right spot. There should be a scraper on here summer. Okay. Here's the branch. Mm-hmm. And then I can put a camera there. Sometimes it's off. Like maybe I hit the secondary branch and there's like a primary one that I missed. Sometimes it's spot on and I can adjust those cameras if it's off. But I've learned so much Intel just like year over year where maybe, maybe you can gain information from it one year and capitalize on it 
If not, then it's information that you got for next year. Yeah. But that's taught me quite a bit about number one, like what deer are using the area from an inventory standpoint. Cause a lot of those good scrapes, you know, four or five good bucks will hit them throughout the course of a year. Um, occasionally I'll put them on pinch points too. And it seems like in the summertime, a lot of those good rut areas, again, like I'm seeing a lot of does and fawns. And so just like that strategy of gaining all of that Intel from the, the cameras is, you know, kind of, again, in supplementing to the e-scouting and supplementing to the, the boots on the ground kind of helps put that picture together. And if there's an area where I expect a deer, like a particular buck is bedding, and let's say I get a 10 PM picture of, of this deer. And then like three days later, I get a 4 PM picture and then I get a 9 AM picture and then I get a, you know, 4 AM picture. Like it's just kind of all over the map, but there's several times through like a given air, like a given time frame that he's showing up during daylight too. It's like, okay, I, I'm probably very close to, if not within this buck's core area, because he's moving here during daylight, like on multiple occasions, it might not always be the same time, but he's probably not betting in the same spot all the time. Yeah. So it's like, I know that I know that I'm close and then maybe I can use that information. Okay. How can I start hunting this smartly? Yeah. And so, so when you're, um, you are talking about, you know, finding those scrapes, are you able to, are you able to find areas or see trends? Like if you looked at a map now, can you look at an area and think that this could be an area where I'm going to find a, a nice scrape at? Yeah. A lot of times if it's, you know, along those transition lines and, you know, you got the clear cut that you can see clearly on the map and then you got maybe like a swamp and then you got some hardwood ridge. And it's like, okay, along this edge, I know I can walk this edge and like, let's say, especially on say the downwind side of that clear cut, I know there's probably going to be a scrape line there where bucks are just cruising the downwind edge of that. And maybe there's does bedding in the middle. Mm -hmm. And then it's just a matter of figuring out, okay, which is the best one of these scrapes. And it seems like a lot of the times, the best ones aren't necessarily the ones that are like, you know, on the middle of that scrape line or necessarily the ones that you can look at a, well, you can kind of look at a map almost after the fact you see the best looking scrape or you look at your trail camera data year after year. And you're like, man, this scrape's always on fire. You look at the map afterwards and you're like, okay, this makes sense because maybe there's doe bedding ABC and you kind of have an idea of where some of those bucks are betting. It's like, this is the most efficient way for him to check multiple areas quickly. Mm-hmm. And so kind of knowing that you can almost kind of, I guess, project a little bit and look at the map and say like, I know there's going to be scrapes in this area, but maybe there's 40 scrapes I can find over the course of a weekend scouting, but which ones are the best ones? Which ones are the ones that are going to hit during daylight? And it seems like a lot of times it's, you know, the ones that are close to that heavy cover or the ones that are in the mix where there's maybe some downward thermal, even if it's like a gently sloping land mm-hmm. and there's just advantage from a buck to try and use that area. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And, and it, it's so much easier, like you said, after you identify a bunch of these things in the woods to go back and then see what it looks like on the map and then be able to apply that later. It's hard to just, you know, if you're, you know, new to it or even to be able to explain it to be like okay this is where you know you're going to find a scrape but once you see those things and you find those different edges and think it it starts to click and just keep rolling through and be able to apply it to different areas 
it, it's almost like if you think about different terrain types, you can look at, let's say like river bottom, cattail marshes, bluff country, like all three of those habitat types have very distinct features that are easy to locate on the map. And if it's not being pressured much, you can almost call your shots and be like, I think there's going to be deer bedding there. They almost always are, you know, unless there's pressure there. Right. And you can go into a spot with very little experience, figure it out pretty quickly for the most part. But it seems like the big woods, it's like the opposite. It's like, okay, if I want to invest time into this, I might think of it as like a three-year plan or a five-year plan. The first year, if I shoot something, that's, that's icing on the cake. But my expectation is it's going to take me several years to really start to figure this out and find things on the ground that make sense and then relate those back to the the map and then find new spots that look like them and build this library of information over the years to where if I've been hunting this place for 15 years, now, now I got it figured out for the most part, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I think what you said there too is, you know, e-scouting and really just scouting and hunting in general, um, in these types of areas, you have to look at it from a multi-year strategy. Like you have to look at it as I'm going to, you know, use the best of my knowledge to figure out these spots to check out and maybe throw some cameras at it, throw some hunts at it, try this out, do some scouting and then learn what you did, journal that down and redo it, you know, and redo the process and adapt. You're, okay, maybe this area had way too much hunting pressure and moving on, you know, and just continually adapting like what you had said there. Yeah. I always like to try and scout stuff that I haven't hunted the year before and try to find like plan B and C areas. Mm-hmm. Luckily, the last couple of years, I haven't needed it. Although it seems like the hunting pressure is definitely not letting off <laughs> in, in some of the areas I've been hunting, but it's like, you know, at some point, maybe the hunting pressure is just so severe where it's like, it's not worth it anymore and i want to go to a plan b spot so i'm always like trying to put out feelers even if it like maybe soaking some cameras and yeah just see what was was what was out in this area you know throughout the course of the year maybe i learned something that is going to totally pull me away from the place i have been hunting um but yeah it's definitely not a, a short pathway to success isn't that the hardest thing though like I know I always want to check out new areas cause I just love walking new areas and it's hard to like find that balance of, I need to continually keep refining these areas that I do know and also have these backup plans. But it's, it's so hard. I, at least for me, I'd love to hear your opinion, but I just want to go and check out new places constantly. Yeah. It's, it's a constant battle. <laughs> I mean, on the, on the one side, I, I absolutely believe you can be more effective if you focus on one particular piece of land. Let's say you got one tag, you're focusing on that one tag, that one area that you've been hunting the last 10 years. I think like by and large, you're going to be more set up for success. But the flip side of that, it's fun to hunt other places and you learn more things hunting other places, whether the habitat's a little different, the deer use it a little bit different. And I feel like it maybe makes you a more well-rounded hunter for, for having those little bits of experience that you wouldn't have got if you just stuck with the same place. I feel like my early years, I, I bounced around too much and I saw a lot of things, but it was never like any given year. I really felt confident that I was going to have a crack at a, like a giant buck. Mm -hmm. But now I'm kind of at the point where I'm more experienced, obviously nowhere near like expert level. Like you're never not, you're never done learning. Yeah, you've never ever arrived. Right, exactly. But it's like, I, f- I feel like I'm at the point now where I'm starting to settle down a little bit 
to where it's like, okay, I need, if I really want my goal to be targeting an older buck, if, if that's like what it is for any given year, then I can't buy six different tags and hunt all these different States. And I can't pick a new piece of public land to hunt every single year. I got to focus in on what I know a little bit more, mm-hmm. cut down on the number of tags and really put it in the time that, that, that goal requires. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, um, I, uh, when was it last year? Oh yeah. Last year I was, um, that's why I told myself I had one tag. I'm hunting one tag and that's Pennsylvania. And if I get that tag filled, then I'll think about doing, doing something else. Cause I was just like trying to bounce around like that just doesn't, doesn't work out in your favor, you know, especially when you're working and, and you're trying to use time off of vacation or weekends or whatever else to try to get it done. It's just, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult to, to do that. That's for sure. Yeah. You can spread yourself too thin, pretty easy. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go back a little bit here, Garrett. And one of the other things on the vegetation type and looking at that, you know, you talked about leaf off imagery. Is there any specific tree types or things that you think are, you can identify on a map? Cause I know it's hard with like a lot of hardwood stuff and, and stuff to really be able to understand, but are there any tips or tricks that you use e-scouting to identify specific tree types? Yeah. In with evergreens and swamps, it's fairly easy to identify, say like tamaracks versus maybe like a, a spruce bog or something like that. But in terms of hardwoods, it's usually more difficult. And the better the imagery is, certainly the better. If I see like a rolling hill in in big woods, and I know that there's like oak habitat there, I can assume there's going to be oak trees somewhere on that that ridge. But a lot of times it can be somewhat challenging to identify the, the specific species. If it's a clear cut here in the Midwest, I know it's probably majority Aspen. That's what, what grows up first. You know, you get the, the weeds and the forbs and then the Aspens kind of replace that. And then eventually it m- matures more. If I remember right from mountain Pennsylvania, beach is kind of a yeah. common thing that regrows in, in those clear cuts. So a slight difference there, but it's like the same thing with you. If you see a fl- fresh clear cut, you can assume it's like beach right in that uh that clear cut um what i found is is with like really good resolution imagery especially if it's leaf off but not always you don't necessarily need it like the old bing bird's eye and like some of the the stuff that's i guess very similar that's in the works on the, the spartan forge that we've been looking at you can see enough resolution to where i can look at an oak island and say like a cattail marsh or look at a ridge and if you see sort of the pattern of the cluster of leaves and it looks like the canopy is a certain shape and maybe a certain height compared to everything else, then I get better at identifying oak trees in those types of areas. And it definitely helps. It's not like something you can just like figure it out or I can explain in words like here's how I identify an oak tree. Yeah, yeah. But if you if you look at a map and then you study the way that those tree canopies look, and then you walk the thing on the ground and you've determined like, okay, here's what the actual trees are here. And a lot of times those, those big, like white oaks or big red oaks or whatever, uh, they might have that more circular tree canopy. And you can tell by like the way the shadows are, that's a little bit taller than everything else. And it's almost like you, you see those little clusters of leaves within that canopy. And then you go and confirm that on the ground. It's like, okay, okay. Now I know what this looks like. And then you can extrapolate that out and look at these other ridges of these other Oak islands and, 
and be able to determine like, yep, there's an oak tree here. There's a couple here. It's easier with the big ones. It's a little bit tougher with the smaller ones. And cattail marshes, especially with that type of imagery, you can look at an island and pretty easily be able to tell that it's either, sometimes I like to think of it as a, a food island or a feeding island or a bedding island. And a lot of times the the feeding islands will have more bigger mature oaks, but not as much understory. And so if you're looking at that in high resolution leaf off imagery, you can tell that you can see a lot more of the ground and you can see these big tree canopies and big trunks, but on the ground, it's more wide open. And then you go walk those on foot and it's almost like you can see clear across. And a lot of times those deer, (coughs) unless they're not being pressured, they won't hit those islands and start feeding until like right next to dark or even after dark. But then you find other islands where it's like, I don't see that those big tree canopies. Maybe it doesn't look as tall. The shadows look a little bit different and I can't see the ground at all. Okay. Well, that island's a little bit thicker. Maybe it's got majority of trees that are, you know, basketball size and smaller and it's more likely to hold bedding, but not necessarily have food, at least not mast food. Yeah. Probably has browse and, and things that the deer will nibble on before they go to those bigger Oak islands. Definitely when you spend some time looking at that stuff and can verify on foot and then look back at the maps, assuming the resolution's high enough in the imagery, I think you can definitely start to tell at least some key types of trees. So like I can tell the difference between a basswood and a maple looking at the, the imagery, but yeah, you know. Well, yeah, we um you me and you were on a call yesterday with um the Spartan Forge team and we so we talk about uh Spartan Forge a lot, obviously. Um partner of the the podcast here and Garrett and I work very closely on trying to make it better and work with the entire team on find making you know pulling all these things that you can find and want to put in there for e-scouting and apply it and I was blown away when I was seeing some of the the new imagery where where Bill was taking the the measurement tool and you could measure the height of the tree (laughs) that was in some of those places like that's incredible and if some of the listeners remember from like a decade ago, maybe they remember this Bing had a bird's eye view where it was just like unbelievable imagery and a lot of it was taken at a slight angle. So you weren't looking straight down and you could see the trees and you could see where the branches would come off the trees. And it was just like an insane amount of detail. And you could actually spin around and look at it from each direction. You know, you could look at it from the North, from the West, et cetera. It's the same type of thing that we're talking about here. So if, if guys are wondering like what an analogy is, if you remember that older stuff, that's mm-hmm. kind of what we're, what we're talking about here. Yeah. And, and it, yeah, it just helps out so much to be able to identify that. And especially I would imagine, you know, with some of those areas with, with the islands and finding that stuff would be like, you could specifically find your tree right there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like that picture I sent you the other day or sent the group where it was like, hey, here's the the tree. And you could see like how the branches are coming off the tree. You could tell probably exactly how I hung my, my saddle platform in that one. Yeah. <laughs> I know that was, that's incredible that, that that's available, I guess, and being able to do that. Um, and you know, w- one of the tricks that, that I had found, um, but it's, I almost don't even like saying it because it can be wrong at times, depending on the, when the imagery was taken. But if you get some in the fall before, um, where a lot of the leaves are off or I guess change color and you still see some that are green. A lot of the times that'll be Oak trees. 
that are left over because they take longer to change. Um, yep. And uh, so you can identify them that way in areas that are, you know, a lot of areas of Pennsylvania that are a lot of mix and you might only find a few oak trees in certain areas. You can identify them uh, a little bit easier, but it's, um, th- that can be subjective, I guess, is why, why I'm putting a little bit of an asterisk next to it. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the leaves on those oaks too, in a lot of areas, they'll hang on to those, those dead leaves up in the canopy a little bit longer. So it's like, if you hit that imagery just right in the time of the year where like most of the leaves are off, but you got those trees that still have a little bit of, you know, that kind of orangish brownish leaf on it. It's like, okay, that, that's probably an oak. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's true. It's, it's tough. It, it makes it difficult to figure out exactly, um, that when you're looking at it, but it's, it's just, it's just another little tool just to keep in the back of your mind that might, might be able to, to help you out and, and go in the details there. Um, w- one of the other things, um, I, I know that you use some, uh, other tools and some different types of mapping and things to, uh, when you're doing your scouting. And I'd like to, to hear you talk about those tools a little bit and how you're using them exactly. So sometimes what I will use, especially like in bluff country, I like to use either LIDAR maps or like slope angle shading, especially if it's an area where I know there's going to be vertical aspects of the, the terrain. You know, we have areas in like, Southern Minnesota, for example, where you get, let's say fairly steep hills, you know, like 20 ish degrees grade, you know, for the most part, some areas steeper, you know, getting closer to like 40 degrees, but then you'll have like a ring around a a bluff or a ring around like a a point that's just like 10 foot of vertical rock. And on just standard topo maps, it's tough to tell that that's going to be there. And you might look at the, you know, the hybrid view and, and, pre-plan your route and then you go and walk in there and you're like, I can't climb this. Right. So if you look at either like a slope angle or like a LIDAR, which is just much higher resolution topography mapping, where a lot of times it'll be presented as like a, they call it a lot of times a DEM, um, or it's just like an elevation map that shows you in shaded relief, like very high detailed shade of relief, what the landscape looks like. And that gives you some different insight because you're not looking at like leaf cover or trees or anything like that, but you're looking very specifically at what does this elevation, what does this actually look like on the ground? And you can tell where there are those vertical areas. You can tell where there's gaps in those vertical bluffs where it's like, okay, here's vertical, this whole, you know, 200 yards along this ridge. And then it turns into like yellow on the slope angle shading and you go, and then it turns back in a cliff again. You go walk up in there and there's that gap. And it's like, there's a beat down in the trail or beat down to the dirt trail going up through that gap because the deer can't climb up the, the vertical cliff. And you might find beds up on, on top of those bluffs. And from like a wind-based bedding perspective, you find a lot of beds like right on the top of those type of features. Similar type of thing down in the bottoms. If you've got creek drainages that are running out of those, those valleys, if it gets steep enough and eroded enough, you'll get those vertical ditches. And occasionally you might have like, let's say the drainage itself is a hundred yards wide, but then there's like this little 10 foot wide ditch that's running throughout that. And maybe in some areas it hugs closer to one Ridge and then it kind of like goes across and hugs closer to the other Ridge. Maybe it's running right down the middle. And then maybe you can see where there's another ditch that is coming from a different drainage and they kind of meet up and make a Y. And it's like, okay, if I see stuff like that, then 
I know that it's number one going to be steep enough where, where deer are not just going to go across anywhere across that valley. Like I'm probably going to be able to go into a drainage like that and find very specific places where those deer are crossing those ditches. And then a lot of times you'll find scrapes nearby. So it's like, okay, now from like an access standpoint, I might be able to walk like near or even maybe in some of these ditches, be able to pop up and sit next to a scrape that's close to like a, a major crossing over those ditches where deer dropping down those points. And maybe I can use the the thermal, you know, downward thermals to my advantage to kind of suck them through that drainage. And the reason I kind of lay that scenario out is maybe you're looking at the next drainage over and you can tell that there's a drainage there in like a creek bed, but it's not nearly as steep. It's like, okay, deer could probably cross wherever here. So then between A and B, if I'm e-scouting, I can look at the one that has the more steep terrain and say, this is probably an area where I can find very specific trails that the deer have to use because it's the only way they can navigate that terrain. Yeah. So you're able to find more of those, um, dedicated pinch points per se, you know, to be able to, to do that. Um, and so where do you find, um, you know, those LIDAR maps and, and everything, where do you find those at to be able to take a look at it? Yeah. So interestingly, a lot of counties or states will have that data available because they'll use it for other uses like, you know, agricultural data or, you know, city planning type work. So a lot of times it's worth just like Googling LIDAR and like whatever your county is just to see if they have anything available. Um, I know back in the day I'd use CalTOPO a bit too to get that type of information. And I'd say what I, what I use the most time in like Minnesota is just like the state-based stuff. But I think eventually we get to a point where that's on the app also. And then again, it's just be like a one, one-stop shop and that'll make thing, life a lot easier. Because a lot of those sources that I'm using to look at the at these features, not necessarily things that I can use out in the field. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at them ahead of time to pick areas to go run into, and then I'm using my phone-based stuff when I'm actually out in the field, and then kind of cross-reference. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, that would be able to, you know, because in case you did miss something, you know, being able to have that available on your phone, you know, when you get there, or if you're going to another plan B area or something and being able to plan your routes in, I feel like would be, you know, especially if you're uh, traversing some of that bluff country uh, where there is some more cliffs and bands like that to be able to find the best way to access. Yeah. Especially if you've got, you got an area where you get that steeper terrain, you got a, a bluff gap that's 200 yards back from the point, the point kind of hooks around to where you know that like on a northwest wind there's probably gonna be a bit like a deer bedding on that point you could set your access up in such a way that you know maybe you're you're coming in from the bottom but from the opposite direction you're coming up through that bluff gap you got the wind just into your advantage you kind of walk the edge of that bluff and then you can set up within you know 100 150 yards early season on some some white oaks um and you can really pre-plan a very specific hunt using that type of information still not an easy one to pull off uh, yeah. a lot of times that time of year there's oaks everywhere and they can just basically feed almost out of their bed yeah during daylight but where, where do you typically see it so i haven't hunted a, a lot of country that has like a lot of the bluffs like that that you're talking about where do you typically see the the bedding um as far as bucks um bedding in those types of situations you said up like up against some of those walls do they bed up against them or how do they how are they using that yeah it's I see a lot of beds like just generally on, on points, mm-hmm. just like everybody talks about 
And then you also see some that are on the top edges of bluffs where they kind of look out over the top of that bluff and the thermals are pulling right up that rock face okay. and come all the way down beneath them. And you might also see them like on the bottom edges of those bluffs where they're a little bit more hidden to where like if you were up on top, like you would never know he was down there. And in the bottoms, I'll find bedding too. It's a little bit harder for me to predict oftentimes where you'll see beds in the bottom. Sometimes it relates to cover that's in those drainages. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times they'll be full of like blow down or just different thicker type cover. Um, or maybe you got a marshy area along a creek and that is holding some bedding. So it, it kind of varies, but those are the standard areas that I tend to find them. Yeah. Um, okay. okay. And so speaking of bedding and, and what you were just saying there, I mean, it's the same. If anybody's hunted mule deer, it's kind of how they bed up against a lot of those uh, with, with the the bluffs you're talking about, when sometimes they um, bed right below them, they do that a lot in in the West and the Rocky Mountain states with mule deer bedding up against with those rocks to their back, the big ones above, so that you you can almost be right over top of them and you're looking straight down, and you have to be directly above them to be able to to see down essentially on top yeah. of them. It's, yeah, it'd be pretty cool to, to figure that out to a you know where you could have a very similar type of hunt where it's yeah. oh, I got the wind, he's going to be better on that bluff and you go stalk up above him. Very easy. blind stalk. It's not like you're glassing yeah. it. You're like, all right, I'm, I'm right. just going to guess and we're going to go in there and try to, try to figure it's, it. It's just big suspense up until you like peek your eyes over and you have no idea if he's going to be there or not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but what about, uh, you'd mentioned bottoms uh, quite a few times here, you know, and, and Big woods type areas again. We're not talking about big, uh, tall ridges and stuff. We're talking about big woods. Um, do you find bucks bedding in the bottoms? Do you find deer bedding in the bottoms? How much are bo- what, what do bottoms mean to you? I always look at them and we'll look at the sign there and try and think of it in the context of number one like what can i learn from this even if i can't hunt it just due to like swirling winds or whatever Mm -hmm. i could probably learn stuff about that bottom area that helps me get a better perspective of is this a high deer density drainage is a low deer density drainage is this place tore up a giant sign um are there big tracks down here like that'll help me determine too like if it's worth if that area is like worth putting time to just generally even if i can't hunt down there but a lot of times also I'm looking for areas like that scenario earlier where it's like maybe it's a rut hunt and the wind's blowing out of the drainage to where it's minimal swirling or I just kind of, you know, cross my fingers and hope. But it's worth sitting there because there's a huge creek, like ditch crossing there or there's a big primary hub scrape down there. And it's like, okay, well, I'll access through that ditch and just, you know, play my cards right and hope to, to have success. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely looking down there and trying to find avenues that I can take advantage of doing that type of hunt whenever I can. Mm -hmm. Um, when, when it comes to those bottoms, is there any different, is there any like certain feature in the bottoms that you're looking for, um, from vegetation type, maybe it's where multiple drainages run together or beaver ponds or what are those things that kind of jump out at you when it comes to looking at bottoms from a map? Yeah, if it's, I look at what's around that bottom. If it's a bottom that has two points dropping into it versus one that's got five points dropping down into it, then I'll, I'll feel more enticed to go check out the one that's got five because it's just more potential habitat and more potential bedding opportunities, more potential deer using that area. 
Um, and I'll try to look for areas that indicate this isn't like a spot where multiple things are coming together, right? Those, those classic hub type areas where you might find that hub scrape, or maybe I can see the trails dropping off these points and, you know, three of them go within 20 yards of this tree. Um, just trying to, to play the game like that. And, and maybe it's an area where, the, you know, the bottom is just not huntable. Maybe it's just too steep or it's too thick or it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I just know like, okay, I'm going to have to hunt the tops in this area. Yeah. But, but I'm, I'm generally looking for terrain based stuff as much as anything and kind of how the deer are using that and what's contextually around that particular bottom as much as, as what's in it specifically. Yeah, no, that's the, the diversity of what's around you from the terrain and the vegetation and everything there. Um, so what else, what else can you kind of think of, um, from an e-scouting standpoint that I haven't asked you from that? Cause there's so many different, <laughs> different ways that we can dive into this, but is, is there something that I didn't ask you good as far as a question or a style that, that you have or, or something that you want to share with it? I think we covered a lot of good stuff. You know, one thing that I, I do quite commonly too, when I'm scouting is I'll use different colors for certain things. You know, if I find something that's from boots on the ground scouting, I find a scraper or better, whatever, I'll mark it a certain color. If it's something where I anticipate there being bedding, maybe it's a different color. So I know it's like not a confirmed thing, but I just anticipate it's there. And then I know I want to go check it out on foot. If it's hunter sign, I'll use a separate color for that. And whether it's a line or whether it's a waypoint, that's just kind of a way for me to kind of collect my thoughts so I can look at a map in its entirety and not just be thrown off by all of these monotonous looking waypoints. I can like even like a level of specificity too. on like the type of scrape, you know, if it's a community scrape versus just like a standard scrape along a scrape line, I use a, you know, a different icon for that. Um, or if it's, if it's like the place where I have a, a trail camera sitting over a scrape, I use that scrape trail camera icon. Um, instead of having two icons stacked on top of one another to where I forget that there's a trail camera there cause the scrape icons over it. Yep. Um, just, just like ways to, to try and make my viewing experience to where it's not just a cluttered mess. Yeah. And, and I, um, yeah, I, I agree with that because like, so just to give you my, um, my, my thought on this, cause I love color coding. And I love using the different icons. Like I'll anywhere that I have a trail camera, I use the trail camera icon or the cell cam icon, whatever it is, but then I make them blue. Um, but I also will mark if I find a scrape that I want to run a camera on, I'll run that blue, you know? So then if I'm looking at it from say, I'm going to be going in the area to start dropping cameras off or whatever, I can kind of see where my cameras are going to be located at and how they look from the bigger scale. Um, you know, if, say I found a community scrape that I would mark that color because I want to run a camera on it or whatever. And I mark my my stand or my stand location, or my tree locations, I mark them, you know, tan or whatever different color. So I can go and look at all the potential setups that I have and see those quickly instead of everything being, you know, say red or brown and everything just looks the same across the board. And even yeah. if they are icons, even if you do change the icons, it's tough to be able to determine it from that 10,000 foot view that you're looking at, uh, to be able to do that. So that's, that's a very good add on that you had there. Yeah. That reminded me of something too. Some of the better areas that I found in big woods and flatter big woods, it's almost like 
when I look at all of my trail camera placement and you look at it from the, the high level view, it's almost like a grid. Whereas it's not just like, oh, I got this big swath of cameras along this line. It's like every you know time I was out scouting and I wanted to put a camera here, 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 or whatever. And then you look at it, it's like, man, this is like a grid. Because there's so much diversity mm-hmm. to be able to support. I need a camera here. I need a camera here. Yeah. That just gives you like a ton of options. Yeah, as I'm as I'm talking to you, I have my I have my app pulled up, and I'm looking at one of the areas that I have a bunch of cameras in, and the way that it's how they're spread out. And it's like you said, it's like a grid, and this is yeah. one of the areas that's like that, and it's it's hilarious. And you know, and I notice that like if I have areas that is more steeper, then they're more. Sometimes I have them more in a line, not like a perfect line, but down the different elevation zones and the bench yep. systems and moving it that way and, and just trying to cover some of those different, different spots. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I just think, you know, using tools like this and keeping yourself organized and being able to utilize that information is so big because if you could, you can go through and mark everything you want, but if you don't have a way of categorizing it and being able to use that information going forward in a useful way, it doesn't really do that much for you. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I did want to, I, I had some questions, um, from Instagram. So just like an hour and a half before we started doing the podcast, I'd ask people some questions and I tried to implement a bunch of them into this without having to specifically ask them, but there's a few of them here that I think would be, um, would be important to, to cover here on the end. Cause I don't think we, we covered them specifically, but, uh, one person was talking about woody swamps in the big woods. And so how are you looking at those from an East scouting standpoint? If you see kind of a swampy area within uh, the big wood setting, I, I would imagine I haven't been there, but maybe Northern Minnesota and Wisconsin and some areas like that would have more of those types of locations. He called it woody swamps. Yeah. Specifically w- woody swamps. Is that okay, what he's talking so, about? Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, when I hear that terminology, I think of like tamarack swamps, spruce swamps, um, things where yeah you got water and you got marsh but it's timbered it's not just like cattails it's not just like wiregrass marsh and so it's kind of a similar type of story there where everything for me at least revolves around edge you'll find areas where deer will cut through those types of swamps a lot of times the bedding itself will be on the edges especially if you got like a tamarack that's got tamarack tree's got a big root ball big root system that's like generally dry especially if you got a big one and a lot of times those will hold beds but you might have let's say you have a 300 acre tamarack swamp you won't find beds just kind of like sporadically mixed throughout that entire swamp generally it's going to be on the edges and i think that's partly because if they get pressured they can go way back into the you know vastness of that swamp but it's also closer to the other stuff that they're going to want to try and get out and feed in or, or, or move to or whatever. Um, a lot of times you'll, it'll be very popular for people to hunt those types of things in like Wisconsin or Minnesota, where you'll have a guy who just climbs up like 40 feet or 30 feet up a tamarack tree, like right on the edge. And he can, he's out there with a rifle and he can just see like 300 yards on the edge. Um, fairly common. Um, but also from like, a a bow hunting standpoint, some of the better woody type swamp areas that I find is where they're close to other types of edge. And it's not just like one big spruce swamp and that's it. And it's next to like just monotonous timber, you know, like an example of an area where it might be 
more worth my time. I know one spot where I got a Tamarack swamp and it's got like, we'll say like a 50 yard strip of marsh. And the other side of that is like clear cut. And you got that mixture there where there's multiple different types and you get a lot of deer activity going kind of back and forth between the two, kind of going parallel along those lines, a lot of scrapes in there. Whereas sometimes you don't find that same level of diversity if you're, you know, hunting just like a big area where it's all just one swamp type. Um, so, so definitely looking at those in the context of other things around them and not just focusing on here's the swamp. How do I hunt it? Yeah, that, that's, and, and like, I think most of the swamps that I've hunted have been like, I don't even know if some people consider them swamps. I do. Cause I mean, it might not be necessarily like not like a lot of water essentially it might be softer, you know, mushy kind of grasses and, and dewberry and stuff. It's all kind of tied in with it and a little bit of water depending on the year that's there, but it's more, it's open around it and then you'll have a little bit higher ground pieces and you'll have some hemlocks and pines and then maybe a clear cut on this side and like you said when you find all that diversity in those types of areas those edges are so can be so good and mm-hmm. i know i know for me i find a lot of sheds in those areas too um and where, where they'll be that's where i find a lot of the bedding with that is like you'll see a little bit of the the higher ground on those or just on the edges of those spots or maybe a group of trees that kind of goes out into the swamp a little bit and and some trees that are blown down a little bit give a little bit of cover there and they're overlooking the swamp but i'll find sheds in the beds and stuff there as well yeah i have one this this shed was holy cow nobody can see this but geez <laughs> so that that shed was found underneath the tamarack tree where you had three different habitat types kind of within a swamp all very close to meeting mm-hmm. um and so that that deer was bedding in that area but he was also using it as kind of a corridor and it was interesting how he used it because he would use it in such a way where he was very rarely next to a tree that was huntable he would just kind of move throughout the swamp and the tamarack that he was betting under was quite small and there, there was kind of small ones nearby, but there was also a lot of like tall grassy and like, um, almost like, I don't know if it's actually switchgrass. It looks like switchgrass. And you got kind of this little like red, red osier dogwood mixed in there. Mm-hmm. Just like this, this mix of a whole bunch of stuff. And yeah, late season, he was definitely in there. And, and, and to your point, if you got that and you got, all those things kind of acting as thermal cover too in those woody swamps. Um, they definitely spend a lot. Of, and the, you have the wood browse there. So like late season and finding sheds. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that, I think that basically about covers it for this one, Garrett. Um, I appreciate you taking the time and coming on here and talking with me. I enjoyed it. It's got me excited to want to look at some more maps and start planning here as it's kind of getting into the data dead of winter and looking at, you know, my spring scouting spots and getting back into it. So I'm excited about that. Oh yeah. Me too. Are you going to come back to Pennsylvania? That's, that's the question I have. Probably at some point, it's just a matter of when. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah, you'll have to come back and maybe do, if you ever get some time to do some spring scouting and you know, whatever, and do some more, some more hunting out here. Yeah. That's really cool habitat. So I would like to come out there again. Yeah, you got sure. to you got to spend some time right with Johnny Stewart too, didn't you? With mm-hmm. um, doing yep. some scouting yep. and hunting there. 
and Johnny, Johnny knows his stuff around here. That's for sure. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was really fun learning from him and just kind of like shutting up and just letting him talk. Yeah. And just soaking it all in. <laughs> that's exactly. That's what I do. <laughs> Every time I'm with him, I just let him talk and I just soak it in like a sponge. <laughs> yep. uh, well, anyways, Garrett, where can people find um, some more where you're putting out your stuff um, and then follow along a little bit? So most of my content's on my YouTube channel, which is called DIY Sportsman. And I also have a lot of content that I'll put out on Instagram at DIY underscore sportsman. Uh, most of the stuff that I have on Facebook is just cross posted from Instagram. So I don't really follow the or post on Facebook quite as much individually. So those would be kind of the two places that you'd find a majority of the stuff I'm putting out. Uh, there's also a podcast that I run through the Sportsman's Nation podcast network um, that you can either find by searching that or the DIY Sportsman podcast. And I post every other week for that one. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on, Garrett. I really do appreciate it. I'm excited to keep working with you and keep making, uh, hopefully making the, you know, the Spartan Forge app uh, just continually getting better from that standpoint and, and making it easier for all of us on the e-scouting standpoint. Oh, yeah. Definitely a fun journey. Yep, that's for sure. All right, we'll talk to you soon, Garrett. Yep, talk to you later. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.